Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey everyone, uh, Todd here. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast. Thanks for joining us this week. I deeply appreciate it. I hope you're all safe and well. A few months ago, I was out in Minneapolis at Pheasant Fest, and it feels like a long time ago now. So much has happened, uh, both with COVID and with the recent events in Minneapolis. And for friends in the Twin Cities area, my heart and thoughts are with you during this time, and I hope that there's healing soon. But we were at Pheasant Fest. I was um, in the booth with Mark at Modern Carnivore and had the chance to sit down with Jamie Carlson and with Wade Trong. Wade is a chef from Virginia, and he has a platform called Elevated Wild, and he's uh, an incredible wild food chef. I mean, he was doing some uh, demonstrations at Pheasant Fest, and we were able to catch up with him and with Jamie and talk about wild food, and I was really excited about that conversation, and I think you're going to like it this week. Uh, Wade and Jamie are talking a little bit about their favorite dishes, what they cook at home, when they um, are cooking maybe on a weekend and they're just digging into some good food. Uh, we're talking about the 80-20 rule. So they're giving some advice on how you can improve your wild food cooking um, and get the best bang for your buck. And also talking about frontiers, like what they would like to try. So we're talking about things like garum for Wade. We're talking about things like trying skates for Jamie. And it's just a fun conversation. You could have sat there for hours and talked to them. So uh, that's what's happening this week. Um, so I hope you like this podcast. I want to thank Wade and Jamie for being here. And I also want to just give a shout out to Wade because after the podcast, he sent me some beaveroni and also some uh, some wild game chorizo and a few other types of charcuterie. And it was absolutely amazing. It was so, so good. And uh, Wade's talking about the beaveroni here on the podcast. So I just want to give him a shout out and a huge thanks and uh, I know you're going to like this conversation. So if you haven't checked out Hunting Camp Live with Modern Carnivore, I ask you to do that. Uh, there's been some incredible turkey hunting content out there that Mark and Kyle have been working on. And so check that out when you can. Let us know what you think. And uh, without further ado, here's a conversation with Wade Trong and Jamie Carlson on wild food. Thanks for listening. I'm going to lead into this podcast by saying if there's two people that I could handpick to have a conversation about wild food. It's Wade and Jamie about cooking wild food and eating wild food and their backgrounds and everything. So this is an amazing opportunity. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. We are here at Pheasant Fest. Amazing amount of energy in Minneapolis this weekend. I had no idea this is the first time I've ever come to Pheasant Fest, and there are just thousands of people coming through this, and it's been a, a, an incredible weekend. So Wade, uh, Jamie, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. So Wade, uh, tell us a little bit. You've been uh, cooking this this weekend and doing some uh, presentations here for the people coming through the show. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, um, just uh, mixing up a little bit and doing doing the food I kind of like to do, which is like melding cultures together. We've got uh, tempura fried pheasant wings with a uh, black barbecue sauce. The sauce has a lot of uh, Korean influences. So it's kind of like a mix of different things and uh the butter curry uh pheasant you know uses uh, i was cooking it sous vide and then you're doing a english street food that's an adaptation of tandoori chicken so it's just kind of like everything that i like about food culture which is it doesn't really have any boundaries it just kind of melds together and it's one of the first parts of a culture that gets accepted wherever it goes you know like i don't i've never met somebody that doesn't like a taco so it's i wouldn't trust somebody who doesn't exactly, like a taco exactly <laughs> so i think it's you know food and and hunting culture you know that that's a core of hunting and i think um it's a good way to introduce people that are not familiar with it or not familiar with hunting to a culture you know it's like if they like the food, then they can understand why you do what you do. And at its core, at, that is what we do. You know, we hunt because we like to eat the things we hunt and we like the experiences that are tied to that. And, um, 
you know, every time I cook something that's, you know, I, I killed or I pursued or I found in the woods, it's, it's deeply special because it's, it's, it recalls all these memories and all these experiences, you know, good, bad failures, success, all of it just gets tied together. And that food always tastes better. And it always means a lot more to me than something that, you know, comes off a truck with a barcode on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've got the, the, the opportunity to share food with people creates conversations, right? And so creates conversations around the food, creates conversations around how that food lived and what it takes to sustain it, you know, the conservation behind it and those stories. And that's really quite powerful. So let's back up a little bit. You have a platform called Elevated Wild, Way True Wrong. So talk a little bit about your background and how you got into that. Um, I've been basically in a restaurant since I was 12. Yeah. Um, but the last uh, eight and a half years or so, I've been uh, the exec chef at this restaurant in Fredericksburg, Kai Becca. We uh, have always focused on uh, seasonal, local produce, and um, pretty open concept, so we can do kind of whatever we want. So not tied to one particular type of cuisine or one style at all. So I've been able to blend a lot of modern and traditional techniques and um, kind of just do the food I want to do which is, uh, I've been lucky to have that opportunity. And, uh, since I got into hunting, you know, a little less than 10 years ago, it's, they've all kind of mix, mix mashed together. Like I get to experiment with so much food at work and then I get to translate those skills I've learned to the wild food. And I, you know, I get to cook a lot. So it's, I get to play around with food and I, you know, over the years I found that like the wild food always tastes better. You know, it just has, you know, not only just the memories associated with it, but it has a little more variability. And Rachel and I, we started the blog because we wanted to share what we're doing. Because when I started hunting and looking for recipes, it was a lot of cream of mushroom soup, crock pot. And it was a lot of masking flavors. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of not hiding flavors and not fighting textures like if it's chewy i want it to be chewy you know don't get me wrong like i like braising things that are tough but i don't think everything has to be this ubiquitous texture and this overwhelming flavor of what you put in there so we you know we have a large focus on making fancy wild food essentially and um it's something that i think is approachable in the sense that like everybody likes good food and uh, I think presenting wild food in its best form possible um, helps draw people into it that are not actively participating in it already. And people that are participating already, they can learn something. I think, you know, I, like I said, I cook professionally and, you know, 60, 80 hours a week. That's all I do. So like I get a lot of time to play around with food and I, you know, make a lot of mistakes and I get to learn from those mistakes a lot faster than somebody that cooks once a day or, you know, a couple of times a week, you know, a couple thousand steaks a week, kind of figured it out. You know, yeah. it's just, I've had a lot more experience with it and I like to share that knowledge. Uh, we're going to bounce over to Jamie here really quick too, but Jamie, do you have a question? I have for a question Wade? for Wade here. Yeah. Uh, as a restaurant chef, uh, has there been anything that you've been cooking at the restaurant uh, that isn't wild? that you've been sitting there cooking and you're thinking, how would this translate to wild and what would I use? And is there an example of a dish that you were doing for the restaurant that you went, I need to go get this from the woods and try it? Oh, absolutely. I think it goes back and forth, you know, like one inspires the other, uh, quite often, like the butter curry dish is something that we did at home. Like Rachel did that after Thanksgiving with some leftover turkey legs that we home feed. And I was like, this is so damn good. I was like, I need a new chicken dish on the menu. I'm going to do that. And then when I was putting together the menu for uh, this event, I was like, that would translate back to pheasant really well, probably better even. So, you know, it goes back and forth. Like I get to, like, again, I'm spoiled with food. I've always eaten out of my pay grade. And I just, you know, I, I see things that work in the restaurant setting, in the commercial setting. And I'm like, how would that translate to wild food? And it's like, it's usually translates better. You know, like if mm -hmm. I'm using dried morels for something at work, like if I can find some fresh morels, it's better. You know, if I'm using a lean cut of 
bison or beef for a dish. I'm like, venison would be a shoe in for that. And it goes both ways. You know, like I, I basically just cook and hunt and fish. So it's, it's a, it's an all encompassing thing. I'm never not thinking about how things are going to taste and how, um, how I can make something better or how do I just present this in a way where you can taste the essence of that ingredient. Yeah. So with the buttered pheasant then, did you use legs and thighs? Uh, not this time because, okay. uh, I use the breast namely because of time constraints and okay. I broke your sous vide. Ah. So. <laughs> and, and so Jamie, we're going to bounce over to you. So you've got uh, some amazing content out there. So for people who are trying to get started, what would you say, what's your philosophy? How would you approach if somebody's just trying to get started, but they don't have a lot of experience with cooking food, wild food or, or general food, you know, how do you approach it philosophically? Any food, uh, it's a question that gets asked a lot. Uh, my wife's friends, my friends, everybody wants to know. Uh, you know, I've tried to cook and it just doesn't work out. Uh, and I've always said, pick five things you enjoy. Five recipes. Uh, for my wife, uh, that was an enchilada bake, uh, some chicken alfredo, a couple other things that she wanted to know how to make. And once she started making those, and I just told her, make them once a month. We'll just rotate through. Uh, and every month she would make these five recipes. And eventually she just got so accustomed to making them over and over again and became more comfortable with them that the different techniques that were put into each recipe became secondhand. And then when she looked at other recipes, she knew how to do them. Uh, and it wasn't as hard. Uh, one of the things that always tripped my wife up and trips a lot of people up, they look at a magazine, they look at a cookbook, they see something they want to eat. They look at the ingredients, they buy all the ingredients, they want to eat dinner at six, so they think, okay, uh, I'm going to sit down at four and start making this. They get to step five and it says braise for six hours. And then it's time to go order pizza and we'll have this for dinner tomorrow. Yeah. So read recipes from beginning to end. Understand the whole process before you even st sit down and buy ingredients because if there's a portion of the recipe where you got to leave it for 24 hours you're not going to be happy when it comes time to do it yeah so plan ahead get the things done pick five things that you can do do them enough that you get so comfortable doing them that when you do go to the refrigerator and you don't have onions you know you can substitute something else yeah it's good advice it's really good advice and so wade what would you say you've been doing this a long time as well i mean you've been in the kitchen you're putting all those hours in how has your style or taste or anything like that evolved over time? Like, has it changed since you started hunting? If you were cooking before you were hunting, um, how has your cooking journey and chef journey been? Like, do you see things like what's on the edge for you nowadays that might not have been there, you know, earlier on? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a constantly evolving thing. And I think, you know, my philosophy on cooking wild food is parallels like, American food in general in that there's so many different influences and there's so many different techniques and ingredients available that there's no end and there's no like right or wrong way. So by adding wild food, you know, game, fish, you know, forage goods, like once I started incorporating that into what I eat day to day, it's like there's an exponential gain of the things available. And, um, the more I work with it, and again, like I said, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of food constantly, the more comfortable I've gotten. And, you know, I'm willing to try things I or was hesitant to do before. Like recently, uh, I've gotten into dry curing meats and making salamis and hams and, um, you know, prosciutto type stuff. And that's something I never would have considered doing five, ten years ago because I didn't understand the, the chemistry and the science behind it. And it just seems so far out there. But now it's like, I get it. And it's because I started small. You know, Rachel introduced me to, you know, doing fermentation, just making sauerkraut and kimchi and, you know, like small stuff that's pretty simple. You know, mostly lactobacillus fermentation. It's the easiest stuff to do. And I was scared of it when I first started because I was like, this stuff is going to kill me. You know, it's like, we're leaving a bunch of food out that's bubbling at room temp. This is, this, this is terrifying. This isn't right, right? Yeah. But now I'm like, I've got, you know, I'll put, recently we did uh, 15 pounds of uh, beaver pepperoni and I have that hanging above a baseboard heater at like 85 degrees overnight to incubate. And then I'm going to put it in a box that's 
55 degrees. And it's like, this goes against everything I've learned about food safety, except that now that I understand how cultures work and how changing a pH will make things safe. And it's, it's just, there's all this knowledge out there that wasn't always available. And, you know, you used to have to be an apprentice to somebody who learned, you know, taught you how to make salamis. And now it's like, you can go online and yeah. the information is there. And that's something I tell all my cooks is like, if you don't know, you can find out. If I don't know, we will find out together because there is no piece of information that you cannot find online right now. And it's like, it's, it's the best time to learn ever. Every day there's more information and there's really no excuse for not at least exploring your, uh, your questions. You know, like you may not have to go through with them, but I think wild food is, you know, treated like it's a separate entity from quote normal food. You know, like I know plenty of home cooks that can cook very well, but when it comes to wild game, they cook it to death because they're scared of it for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's wild. It's got bad stuff in it. Yeah, it's going to yeah, poison exactly. us. And the idea of that, like, you know, coming from it from a hunting standpoint it makes no sense because it's like i saw how this animal lived it lived a natural life it died quick and cleanly and i processed it myself and it all makes sense but there's this idea and i think it's generational that like the only safe food comes from the supermarket like, i know plenty of older folks that won't buy eggs at the farmer's market because they're like they're not refrigerated i'm like they don't need to be yeah, and, like, yeah. <laughs> yep. and there's I, so much of it's generational and so much of it is i think dying off namely because there's so much information and you know there's a focus on sustainable local food and you know like everybody knows the eggs from the free range you know chicken farmer at the farmer's market taste better you know, the yolks are richer like it's just a better product than something that's been in a refrigerator for a couple of weeks after it's traveled a couple thousand miles there's like a serious difference in the quality so i don't know there's so much information and I, I think everybody owes it to themselves to explore things that they're not comfortable with and try different things. And, you know, once you come to the realization that you can treat wild game, you know, the same, if not better than everything else out there, you know, it's, it's wide open. Food culture is massive. There's no end to the different combinations and types of food you can make. And there are entire cultures that are centered around really lean meats that lend themselves to wild game very well. You know, like a lot of Middle Eastern food has a lot of lamb, goat, mutton, mm -hmm. you know, um, basically you get outside of modern American proteins. Every other culture uses a lot of food that is, you know, once wild or very similar to wild game, like, you know, grain fed beef and pigs and chicken in the U.S. are very unique in that they're high fat and very ubiquitous tasting. You know, they all mm -hmm. taste like corn basically. But all these other cultures around the world have older cuisines based around proteins that are much more similar to wild game. And like going in that direction, I think it's easy to find techniques that work and translate really well. Yeah, that there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm just going to back up a little bit. Yeah. And you when you were talking about, did you say you were making beaver pepperoni? Yeah, beaveroni. So talk a little bit about that. So I'm I mean, a big, that is something that like, uh, is that's ear popping. That's pretty yeah. cool. Now I'm, uh, I'm big on both Rachel and I are big on portmanteaus and just like playing with words, but beaver meat. Um, we, we trapped a couple of beavers a few years ago, um, to help this landowner remove them from this, uh, this Creek they were flooding. And I was like, well, this meat looks good. Let's try it. And it's tasty. Honestly, it tastes a lot like bison. It's real lean, um, red meat, like real lean. And we grilled the back straps up and it tastes kind of like bison's, kind of like elk. And I was like, well, this is great. And, you know, we did some pretty safe stuff with the, the meat initially, braised it, made some barbecue sandwiches. It's great. You know, it's just, honestly, you couldn't tell the difference between a, like the shredded beaver meat and like shredded venison or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But this year I started trapping on some public land while we were duck hunting we saw all these beavers and all these new dams and i was like well let's try this out and been pretty successful so far and i made venison pepperoni um about a month ago and it turned out excellent you know it's just like mind-blowingly different than store-bought pepperoni so 
I, after cleaning the beavers up, I had a bunch of trim and I was like, this is a good use for this. Let's try this. And it's got a clever, clever name. So I'm all about, you know, if I, if there's a clever name for a dish, I want to, I want to try to make it work at least, <laughs> but it'll come out of the, uh, the cure chamber in here in about a week or two. And you know, if you want, give me your address. I'll send you some. Say, I'll give you my address right now. All right. Do you have coots down there in Virginia? Uh, some, not many. Okay. I've, I've eaten a few coots. Yeah. Most, you know, most everybody around me is like, yeah, you can't eat them. And they taste fine. Yeah. Uh, I did an article a while back uh, about eating coots. Uh, and what I'd done, similar play on words, found a nice sausage called Kotakino. Nice. Uh, and made a kutakino. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I think we made uh, takutos. With takutos, ours. nice. <laughs> That's great stuff. Do you, what do you guys think? You think there's like a novelty? Like with some f- people that are like adventurous food eaters too, like I think they'll be like a part of the population. Some people are going to be like, ah, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to eat this wild game. But then there's this adventurous part of it too. That's like, whoa, that sounds good. Um, if it's there's a novelty to hearing about beaver meat or there's a novelty to having that name or something do you, you know do you find that that that's compelling to a certain component of i think there's foodies? a lot i think there's a lot going on within the food world and when you looked at some of the things that i was raised on you know uh knowing some of the guys i hunted with you know we we breasted birds out we, we didn't touch legs and thighs uh which is just a travesty because once you learn how to cook them uh goose legs and thighs are one of the best things in the world not just as confit but you can barbacoa or do anything else with them and they make wonderful tacos and they make wonderful stews and uh like a pot roast you could do with the legs and thighs all that sort of stuff uh deer shanks seem to be another one uh i've i've talked to so many people that say oh no that's for the dog you just throw those to the duck. Deer shanks are the best part of the damn deer. Uh, they have all that connective tissue, and when they're cooked correctly, you know, I do a nice French stew that was my Auntie Boots's famous French stew. Uh, and when you use the deer shanks, all that connective tissue breaks down, and it thickens the sauce, and the meat has a better texture, and it's soft, and it just melts in your mouth. And, you know, most people that have ever tried to eat it, you know, throw it on a grill and try to eat it, and it's like a rock. So they, they, if you cook things correctly and you know the right way to do them, everything is delicious and everything is tasty. And as people look at the food cultures and they want to try new things, and you go to the restaurants now, you're seeing things on restaurants now that were never there 20 years ago. And people want adventure. People want new things. Uh, I blame Instagram and Facebook everybody's posting everybody's seeing you see these dishes people want to try new things people want that so they try new things and it's great uh, and with wild game it's even better because we're seeing a, sort of a modern uh, renaissance uh, of squirrels people are going back out in small game hunting uh, it seems like everybody got away from it and wanted to i want to kill an elk i want to kill a deer i want to go out and kill big game mm-hmm. uh, and nobody squirrel hunted anymore and nobody starts squirrel hunting anymore. Squirrel hunting is deer hunting. Mm-hmm. It's just smaller. You, you use a smaller caliber gun. You use the same techniques, though. You go out in the woods and you find an oak grove with good food and good area and good uh, habitat. And then you sit still and you wait. And then a squirrel shows itself. And if you're using a twenty two with a scope, it's no different than shooting a deer. You're shooting a small target in a very specific spot. Quick kill. Not ruining any meat. And you're good to go. And now we're seeing more people go back to that. But what do you do with squirrels? You know, cream of mushroom soup in a crock pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what used to be done. Mm-hmm. But if you look, you can see that everybody's doing something new. Uh, Jenna Roselle out of Maine is doing hot and sour soup with squirrels. Uh, I've done a, a Nashville hot squirrel. Uh, all sorts of good things to be done with squirrels. And they're delicious. Yeah, they are delicious. It's an interesting, so there's some stuff to unpack there too, because like you touch on the influence of social media in like helping to boost the food renaissance that yeah. we have. And Wade, in your opinion, is there anything else behind that? What is driving that? Because like when I grew up, it was the same thing. Like when we ate venison, it was in the fry pan, it was overcooked, mm-hmm. you put ketchup on it, and that was it. Right. Yeah, there's and, only one way to do ducks. Right. Uh, you marinate them in Italian dressing and you grill them uh, until they're stringy and dry. And then you eat them and you complain about it. Yeah. That's how you used to eat duck. So, yeah. Wade, what do you think about that? Like, what's driving the foodie movement? Uh, I think it parallels everything you guys have said. It's just there's so much 
there's so much information available and it's so it's rapidly evolving you know like you look at food trends over in the u.s like say over the last like 50 60 years or whatever and it's like trends used to take five ten years at a time to catch on you know like uh black and red fish is a good example of that it's like somebody started doing that in new york and within 20 years collapsed a redfish stock in you know the gulf yep. and it's like and that trend stuck around for five, 10, 15, 20 years. Now you have trends that pop up and they're gone in a weekend. You know, like the, what people want and what people have access to and what people see is instantaneous. So like if somebody does something really cool in LA, somebody in New York will see that, that minute and they can start, you know, changing it or imitating it or however, or just incorporating it into their uh, repertoire, like right away. So you just like you, you have a sped up evolution of the food culture. And I think there's also a pendulum swing on, you know, what you, well, what consumers want out of their food and what, you know, people that, you know, hunt and fish and everything else want out of their food. It used to be, you know, like you look at the eighties is like extremely saturated with expensive food. You know, it was just like foie gras and really nice steaks. And then like, there was this trend of like, everybody wanted Wagyu and everybody wanted nice dry aged beef. And that's, you know, it's tasty. I've had it. Um, but the only thing associated with that is money. It's like, if you can afford it, you can afford this really nice thing and you can go to this nice place. Um, and then you see like, like Noma, you know, one of the most famous restaurants in the world, they're going the opposite direction. It's like what they're doing is essentially what we're doing as, you know, people trying to consume wild food is they go out and they find unique, underappreciated ingredients they literally go around tasting stuff and just be like can you eat that can you eat that can you eat that what's that taste like and they take notes and they're you know like Rene Rezepi is the most famous chef in the world right now and he literally is feeding people weeds that he's fermented in a incubator at $500 a person or $1,000 a person you know like that that trend is, pine cones exactly do you see the pine cone thing yeah. he did no I mean everything he does like, it's he's definitely trailblazing and he's changing the direction. It's not like, hey, come here and try this expensive stuff. It's like, come here and try the flavors that you've completely missed out on. And I think, you know, as hunters and anglers, it's something that we already do, but kind of need reminding of. It's like, we're literally tasting stuff that you can't taste anywhere else. Like, you know, early season ducks taste different than late season ducks. And there's, there's a unique hyper-local terroir lack of a better word to wild food that is very seasonal and very ephemeral you know it's like it comes and goes like i don't know it's, it's there's a lot tied to it it's just like this is what this season tastes like and this is what this hunt tastes like and i think everybody wants to uh, you know experience more more than just i get my well done steak with ketchup and mm -hmm. more than mm -hmm. Whatever else, you know, like, don't get me wrong, you know, the burger is still the king of the culinary world. Everybody wants a beef burger. Mm -hmm. The whole world wants a beef burger. But it's, I think the, the curiosity and the willingness to try different things is growing. And I think that's a great thing. You know, variation in wild game cooking and even just in the commercial market is, is beneficial for everybody. You know, it's like putting less pressure on certain agricultural products and, you know, trying different things with wild game and just making things work the way you want them to work and like seeing that it's, it's all food and it's all tasty and you just have to learn how to do it. And it's no different than cooking, you know, anything else really. Yeah. That's all well said. Uh, Jamie, would, do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> it's talking about food. I can add for days on Days on end. So, so how? Uh, about, yeah, go ahead. So, with with wild foods, uh, one of my favorite things to do uh, is when I'm out hunting. Say I'm squirrel hunting. Uh, September, early season, you're out there. Uh, you're getting squirrels. What else is out there at that time? You know, uh, there's typically chicken woods mushrooms. There's usually a maitake or something hanging around. There's mushrooms everywhere. There's gooseberries. There's some raspberries in the late season. Uh, the acorns start falling. Uh, try to get anything else from the area you're hunting. If you shoot a deer and there's berries nearby and those berries are usable, bring those berries home with you. Make a guest streak, 
put it on your venison. Now you're combining your outdoor ingredients and you're getting, you're, you're having something that no one else is eating at that time. Yeah, that's great advice. You know, I, I shot a sandhill crane a couple of years ago uh, and I was, I was in Northern Minnesota. Uh, we were, we were grouse hunting oddly enough and I jumped a grouse. I took a shot, the swamp erupted and I always use uh, non-toxic. I always do because I'm an opportunist and I will shoot ducks anywhere I can. I will shoot whatever I can. So sandhills are in season, grouse are in season, sandhill came over. It was right above me. So 20-gauge number four steals. I dropped a sandhill. Now I'm looking around to see what's close. And there was cedar. Uh, so I cut some cedar boughs. Uh, take those cedar boughs home, throw them in a crock pot, a little maple syrup, uh, put your uh, sandhill crane uh, leg and thigh portions in there, stew them overnight, let them go with the cedar. In that cedar are all these flavors that you don't even know. There's cardamom, there's clove, there's cinnamon, uh, and it, it all blends in there. Now you take that meat, you shred it up, and you make yourself some steam buns, and you are the only human being on the face of the earth eating cedar braised sandhill crane steam buns. Uh, and that is just, it's, it's a wild feeling for me. Yeah, that is so cool. It's such good advice. Uh, you know, pairing it up with what's there on the landscape, yeah. pairing it up with what's in season, what goes with it. And it just enriches the whole thing. So here's a, here's a question. So you're in the Midwest here, yes. right? You're on the East coast in Northern Virginia, right? Wait, yeah. Central Virginia, Central Virginia. Okay. So like if you had to put together, if each of you had to put together a little playbook for people for hunters and anglers and say okay like what do you like to eat when you're cooking for yourself if there was like a red meat dish uh, a, a fish dish and a, like an upland or waterfowl dish you're home on a saturday night you can cook anything you want just to enjoy eating it wade what would it be from the east coast um it's tough. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very emotional about my food and it's just like, you know, I, it's whatever I'm in the mood for, but, uh, one of my go-tos with, um, probably the go-to dish at the house for red meat would be, you know, venison backstrap or bone in chops and, uh, use real simple salt, pepper, sear, put them in the oven for about four minutes. And then I always make a bunch of demi-gloss every year with all the bones. So, um, venison demi-gloss and a bunch of roasted vegetables that's it that's like that's our like every day after work meal but if i'm feeling it i I, i'm a big fan of uh mexican food i love making anything that even you know would go on a tortilla so braised meats you know barbacoa is everybody's favorite you know but i don't know i think it's just about finding like like what do you want and then how do you put your wild game in there and it's real simple like i like crunch wrap supremes so you know you make those with venison or goose or anything else and it's, it's damn good um fish wise i like to keep fish pretty simple um we uh, we get a lot of variety with our fishing on the bay so we've been eating a lot of cobia this year and cobia just roasted in a pan with some butter some capers or you know, some kimchi, anything with a little uh, funky tartness to it. And, um, yeah, mostly re- roast vegetables. I eat a lot of vegetables and protein. And uh, waterfowl, the goose in particular. Um, we hunt them on the northern neck, and they're usually there from just a l- little earlier in Christmas. So we, well, I guess around Thanksgiving, Christmas. They're feeding on egg um, in the fields, and they're just like the cleanest fattest tastiest geese in the world so like i do those cold pan sear the skin flip it shave it real thin kind of like a steak and um from there anything like you know i've just any kind of sauce will work um you know for as far as everyday meals go like i yeah cooked goose meat and some roasted vegetables that's that's i'm good it can't get any better that sounds amazing so jamie what's your Thanks for making him go first. I need to think about this. <laughs> we gave you some time to think it yeah. up. Uh, you know, Minnesota, uh, you know, the white-tailed deer is king. Uh, everybody hunts them. Uh, 
Uh, I I love the shanks, so I, I make anti-boots of stew whenever I can. Uh, and it's just a nice braise with some mild mushrooms and some pearl onions, uh, port wine, uh, sherry, and some red wine. Stew that for about two and a half hours. It gets nice and thick. Serve that with some crusty bread and some butter, and you're golden. Uh, it's my favorite thing to eat. Uh, as far as fish goes, uh, Minnesotans love their walleye. Uh, I am not a walleye man. Uh, I prefer northern pike. I like catching them better. Uh, you take a little time and learn how to fillet them. You can get rid of all the Y bones, and it's not hard. Uh, it's actually really simple. Uh, and I just, you know, northern pike, I can do that every which way, but we lose. Yeah. You know, tacos are great. Yep. Uh, I I do, uh, when you when you get the pike, I like, I grow sorrel in the garden. So there's a classic French uh, salmon and cre- sorrel cream sauce. I like it with my pike. Uh, that's an easy thing to do. Uh, yeah. And then when it comes to waterfowl, it's goose for me. Canada yeah. goose all the way. Yeah. Skin on, seared in a cast iron pan, uh, roasted in the oven a little bit. And then typically throughout the year, I make three or four different varieties of chutney. Yeah. I get rhubarb from the garden or I'll go out and I'll get wild plums and make chutney out of that. And then, you know, goose and chutney goes together just perfectly. It's amazing, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, those are, those are great suggestions. And so like, uh, if I, if I were thinking about food, I like to eat, you know, one of the dishes I think that I really like, I came across this dish. It's like a paparadelle de chinguale. It's Italian, it's Tuscan and chinguale was like a wild boar in Tuscany. And so it's like a ragu kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over wide paparadelle noodles. And so what I've done over the years, Wendy and I, my wife had traveled there several years ago, just on vacation. And we came across this dish um, in in a hill town out in the middle of nowhere in uh, near Siena, and it was just absolutely amazing. And so, what I've tried to do is um, incorporate. I like to can venison in jars, mm-hmm. like pressure cooking it, and that's more just as much about tradition because my family did that, my grandmother did it, and my stepmom. And so, and I like the convenience of it. And I joke that it's risk management too, because if my freezer ever goes, you know, on the fritz, then I've got jars of meat yep. on the, in the pantry that will stay. Um, so like I, I've um, canned meat for years. I've canned bear meat, venison, um, a pronghorn from this year mm-hmm. from a public land trip, um, mule deer, have whatever done, I can can. Have you done any waterfowl? I've never canned waterfowl. Okay. No. So that's, that's what I, so we, have you ever? No, it's, it's on my list of things to do. There's a guy up in Canada, Martin Picard, uh, and he's been doing it forever and he'll just do a whole stew right in the jar, you know, beans and red wine and duck or goose, uh, yeah. and a few other ingredients in there. And then he'll can it and just pressure cook it. And then he's just got stew in a can. So my uh, grandmother used to can chicken meat. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, so same kind of thing, but she'd have like, I use like quart jars or pints. Mm-hmm. But she had really big, like um, two quart, like half gallon, I think they were, um, big jars that she would do poultry in. Yeah. So you can do a lot of stuff with that. That's, um, you know, it's so traditional and, and a lot of people just, you know, don't do that. But like where I was going with that is the, the canned venison with some some mushrooms, with some local mushrooms over a popperdell noodle mm-hmm. um, and with a good glass of wine. is That would be like what I would serve company, um, like if somebody special was coming. And, and like, that is really simple, but it's, is for me, it's something I really enjoy. Oh, yeah. And then like with the fish, we fish, uh, lake trout mostly up in the Northeast in the Adirondacks. I fish for pike too. And, uh, you know, some old family recipes were like the fish cakes with the pike, which yeah. are so good. And they're, you know, they're pretty traditional, but, um, we, my wife was playing around with like a lake trout curry last year oh, yeah. with some of the trout we caught and these lake trout, um, they're. Uh, they're strained. They're not oily or anything like that. I've heard people kind of rain on lake trout, uh, but I don't know. This, this fish is amazing. It yeah. tastes good, you know, cold water and the curries that she makes with the, you know, with the fish um, is, is so good. It's yeah. like something you could find in a, in a nice meal at a restaurant. People that don't like trout and people don't like lake trout uh, is because it doesn't bread and fry well. Yeah. You know, and most people, when it comes to fish, it's breading and frying. Right. It's the traditional uh, yeah. Friday fish fries, yeah. right? Yeah. The uh, bull, we used to do that with like bullheads. I don't know if that's yeah. a tradition around yeah. anywhere else, but we'd go bullhead fishing and, you know, fry them up in the oh, fire. Yeah. 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 But lake trout blend, lends itself to just about everything. It's a yeah. great fish to smoke. It's a great fish for stewing. Yeah. yeah it it's pretty perfect. good stuff. What would you say, Wade, like in life, there's like an 80-20 rule where it's like, 
you know, 20% of the improvement can yield a lot of results. And so if somebody were starting to try to cook wild food, if there was like a couple nuggets of advice, that's like, Hey, here's like simple tips that can get you a long way on your journey for the, for the leverage of it. What would you say? Um, I think devoting all the time and energy into understanding the core concepts of what makes, you know, the food you like good will make all your cooking better. especially wild game It's like, you know, finding that balance of fat, acid, salt, that's what makes food good. You know, it's not that, you know, chefs have some amazing thing. It's usually because they season their food really well and they cook it to the right temperature. So, you know, finding whatever food that you love and whatever dish or style that you like and like figuring out what about that is so tasty and then applying that to all your other food and all your food's going to taste good. It's, I mean, I would say the biggest thing of my biggest complaint about food that I taste that's, you know, where I'm like, this is not right is it's usually under seasoned. And the second thing to that is it's not cooked appropriately for the fat content. Mm -hmm. You know, if something's fatty, you got a lot of wiggle room. Like you can cook it for a little longer than you want or planned and it still comes out. Okay. With wild game, it's lean. So you go over that mark and you have a texture that you don't want and you have a you know, food experience that is not all that pleasurable and not all that memorable, you know, memorable in a negative way maybe. But it's really about not overcooking your food and making sure it's seasoned right. And like I said, it's about the core concept. So if you know how to braise shanks, you know, that's a big trend right now. Everybody's into venison asabuco. If you can braise shanks, you can cook goose legs, you can cook duck legs, you can cook anything that is tough. It's the same thing. You just might have to adjust the time a little bit. You know, I get a lot of people asking me like, well, you know, you have this recipe for, you know, whitetail. Can I use mule deer? I'm like, yes. You know, it's the same damn thing. You know, it's, if it's tough and it has the same kind of connective tissue and the same kind of like muscle structure, it's going to lend well to any other application. And I think same with fish, you know, like, you know, everybody likes frying fish, every culture ever likes frying fish and putting some sort of hot sauce on it. But you can substitute fish in like wherever, however, as long as they're the same densities. So you have a dense fish like swordfish or something. It's You cook that differently than you would cook trout. That's really delicate and really flaky. And there's, you know, some gray area in the middle where it's like, well, this is semi-dense. And then you treat it like all the other semi-dense fish. Like, you know, it was like, how do you cook a redfish versus a rockfish? Like, oh, East Coast rockfish, striped bass. It's like the same, you know, like they're almost identical in texture. Um, and, you know, just mostly poke at it and be like, does this feel like this fish or does this feel like this? Or does this meat look like this? You know, the beaver meat looks like venison. Mm-hmm. I'm going to treat it the same way. You know, the cobia is, you know, it, it's like dense halibut. I'm going to treat it like that there's so many labels put on food like, well, this is this and this is this, this and this. And it's like, they're, it's more about what they are than what they're called. You know, it's like, these are flaky, mild fish. These are dense fish. This is lean red meat. This is tough red meat, you know, and that basically covers most of your bases as far as wild game goes. It's like, it's all going to be lean and it's all going to be a gradient of tenderness and once you figure out how to cook each one of those tendernesses, it will get those textures to where you want, then you can apply it to anything, you know, like any game. It's all like on a molecular level, the same thing. Yeah. There's such a cool element of assimilation to that, right? Being able to assimilate over to like thinking through things like, oh, okay, I can, like you're saying, like classifying it by the type yeah. of food and then being able to like, okay, what can I substitute for that? Or how can I treat this, um, you know, similarly to what I've done with another dish, Jamie, what would you say from a 80, 20 standpoint through your experience with cooking? I think, uh, one of the key things for wild game is to just give it to people in ways they're familiar with, you know, tacos are great. You know, everybody likes tacos, figure out a way to make a taco Mm -hmm. and use whatever wild game you have. Uh, especially when introducing it to new people. You know, if you have an understanding of cooking, you can do the braises. Uh, Ground meat isn't bad either. You can use ground for everything. Uh, But when feeding it to other people, make a taco, make a burger, do something simple, a meat pie, 
uh, a classic stew, an Irish stew with venison, uh, any of that stuff. When you when you give it to people in familiar forms and they they know what they're supposed to expect, it's an easier gateway to get them in there. Uh, the other thing is when you're just learning to cook, buy a meat thermometer. Uh, do not go over 140. I mean, just if you've heard 165 in your life, just throw that out the window and find 140. Uh, and and when you do it at 140, then start experimenting. Go lower. Get down into the 120s. Uh, you'll love it. It's delicious. Yeah, it's great perspective. I'm going to ask one final question. Is there anything out there? I mean, you, you both have a lot of food experience. You've tried a lot of different things. You've seen a lot of different, um, you know, you've seen a lot of different food preparations and everything, anything on the edge out there that you're itching to try that you haven't tried yet. Anything that you've, you've had in your mind, whether it's cooking or eating about, Hmm, I wonder what this would be like. Can I go first here? Yeah. Because, uh, I'm fascinated, uh, by skates, uh, and, and Wade has been cooking a lot of skate wing and doing a lot of dishes with skate and they look and just seem very interesting to me. Uh, and of course I live here, so I'm not getting them, but, but how are they? And what can you tell me about them? If um, I could, if I could order some, uh, what would I best do with it? Um, they're honestly, it's like a thin scalp, you know, and like, it, it's not the, you know, the myth of like punching out skate wings or stingray yeah. wings and making scallops. That's not a true thing, but skate wings have a very linear structure like a scallop. You know, when you kind of push a fork through a scallop, it wants to fall apart top to bottom. Yeah. Skate wings are like that. And they've got a very sweet kind of, um, semi dense, but linear structure. So they lend well to any kind of scallop application. They soak up fats really well. Okay. So piccata is a real classic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always tasty, you know, like pan fried, just getting a little bit of a texture on there and adding some fat and adding some acid. You, you really can't go wrong, but it's a very, um, versatile, um, protein and you could take it a different direction and take it apart, you know, like steam it, shred it. And you basically have crab meat. It'd be okay. hard to tell the difference between the texture of like blue crab meat, back fin versus skate wing that's been shredded. Um, yeah, if you ever want to come out, fish or skates are everywhere. It's <laughs> We use I, I, I do. Uh, yeah, come so, up. I'm serious. Uh, what like, time does the flight leave today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know where Jamie's headed. <laughs> hey, now, do you guys get the bow fish them down there? You can. Okay. Um, you know, I, I generally don't do too much bow fishing. Um, nothing against it. It's just yeah. like, not something I do. But uh, we usually catch them as a bycatch while we're fishing for um, everything else. You know, okay. Like we're targeting, you know, striped bass, speckled trout. Um. And there's always skates in the, yeah. you know, late spring, early summer, and uh, sometimes into, it depends on the time of the year, but like skates and rays are prevalent. And whenever you're fishing for cobia, you're going to catch like 10 rays to every okay. skate. And, yeah. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed bow fishing, yeah. uh, but I, I don't do it because up here, the only thing we can bow fish for are carp. And I just, I've tried carp in every different way and they're just not good enough to me uh, to uh, want to go fill a freezer full of them. Uh, and I've seen on TV and whatnot, these guys out bow fishing for skates and rays. And yeah. if yeah. I could, if I could bow fish for something useful, oh, I think you, that would be you fun. Definitely could. You don't even, you don't even need a boat. You can just yeah. get out on dock and, you know, wait for the tide to push them in. Yeah. They travel with the tide and they come into the shallows and, we were out there fishing. We wanted one cow nose ray that was medium sized because they get pretty big. And, you know, we're basically this thing wrapped itself around the dock about 30 times with 60 pound braid. And it took us about an hour to get it, get it out of the water, <laughs> broke the net, everything else. But that's all you need. Like with a bow, it'd be easier. Yeah. You know, like one of those things laid out to be about 15 pounds of, of meat off the bone. So wow. off the cartilage rather. Yeah. Um, Skates are a little smaller, but they're they're delicious. It's one of my favorites. Um, it's a welcome bycatch. Yeah. And, you know, when you're not expecting it on a light, light medium rod, it's it's a hell of a fight. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as food that I'm excited to try or on the edge, uh, I actually have it in my basement right now. I started a batch of uh, garum, so f- fish sauce technically or, you know, similar. It's like the just basically – fish in salt and you make fish sauce so it's fermenting 
the thing is, it's usually done with small fish that have a high viscera and bone and skin and, you know, to flesh ratio. So you can't yeah. do it with like a big fish that has a lot of fillet meat on it. The meat doesn't ferment well. You need the enzymes from the guts to kickstart that fermentation. So, you know, it's terrifying. Basically, I chopped up a bunch of menhaden and uh, we had some um, Spanish mackerel uh, that had filleted. And I put all the bones, like two different batches, different ratios of salt in there. And there's not a lot of good information out there about making garum from scratch. A lot of it is done with a modern incubation, holding things at 120, 140 degrees for X period of time to get that enzyme going as fast as possible and making sure it's safe. Uh, traditionally, they would just bury it all in a thing for a couple of years in the sand and dig it out and, you know, hope for the best. So that's been working for a couple months now. And it's, I, I look at it, it's on my workbench downstairs and I'm like, I, one day I'm going to touch that and I'm going to die. Uh, or I'm not, <laughs> it might be delicious. It looks good. It smells really good. It smells like really good fish sauce, but you look in there and it's like, that's mostly fish guts and fish eyes and bones. And it's like, um, that's where I'm at is that still, there's still plenty of food that worries me and scares me. And it's like, I'm unfamiliar with and not comfortable with, but like, it's worth trying. Like, yeah. Worse. Is that the type of thing that has to be done with a saltwater fish or could you do it with a freshwater fish? You can do it with anything. Like okay. from what I understand, it's more about the, like the ratio. Like okay. you don't want a lot of meat in there. Like, so we've got here in Minnesota, the smelt, yeah, which will be delicious. coming up in April. Yeah. Uh, and I've been thinking about trying this with smelt. Yeah. Uh, I got a whole bunch of smelt last year, but, uh, by the time I got around to thinking about doing it, I realized that I'd already cleaned and gutted all my smelt. So I have to wait until this year to go back and get some smelt. I think smelt you should do it. And and let me know how it goes. Um, if I, I live through it, you'll try yours? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's a good barometer. You, go you ahead, go Jamie. Ahead. <laughs> exactly. You go first. <laughs> so we could keep talking for hours on this stuff, right? But uh, I think that's a pretty good place to sign off. Thanks for joining us on the Outdoor Feast podcast. This is a great conversation, and you, you both have some amazing perspective and I know the listeners are going to enjoy this podcast. So thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.